Welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Burke, and I do data engineering and machine learning at Databricks. And today I am joined by my wonderful co-host, Ben Wilson. Uh, I do a lot of stuff with software and ML at Databricks. And today we don't have a guest. And instead of having a well thought out, perfectly planned episode, we are just going to shoot the shit and talk about some things that are top of mind uh, for both of us. Currently, Ben is working on documentation for MLflow. He's basically redoing the whole docs website. And I thought it'd be interesting to go sort of down memory lane. And this would be useful for me personally, um, just to see how he has changed over the past five years, right? Since joining Almost Databricks? Six, man. Wow. Okay. Um, over the past six years, he entered wide-eyed and and ready to learn and is now all jaded and knows everything. So it'd be interesting to see how he has switched um, both from like a technical <laughs> skills perspective, a soft skills perspective, and then also how his brain actually fundamentally works differently um, via the past six years of experience. So Ben, do you mind painting a picture of how you entered Databricks? What were you like? How did you think? What did you enjoy doing? You know, it's super funny before I get into that, how you said jokingly uh jaded and now knows everything it's actually the inverse so <clears throat> i think when i started i like reflecting back on when i joined the company and i joined in, in the field right i i was hired to start up with this relatively small group of people there was there was like 10 or 11 of us or something at the time that we're doing post sales, like technical support for uh, our customers. And what that meant was like, hey, we, we just landed an account and they want to move on to Apache Spark on Databricks. They want to learn how to do ETL. And a couple of them were, uh, you know, wanting to learn how to port some of their machine learning workloads over onto Databricks. And I'd been a customer. Uh, of Databricks and was had been doing ML on on Databricks, and this is prior to MLflow being a thing. This is prior to having quite as many libraries and and the platform wasn't quite as stable as it is now. And it was definitely a much smaller company. It was like 180 people or something when I joined, and but they had a, you know this great vision. But I thought that I knew a lot about what the platform could do. I thought I knew a lot about Apache Spark. I could write Spark in both, uh, well, not in both, but in four of the different, at the time, five modes that you could interface with it. I knew how to write Java, Scala, Python, and SQL. <clears throat> R. No R? Yeah, okay. Nah, it's not really my jam. Uh, <laughs> I've learned it over the years a little bit, but nowhere near uh, what I would call proficient at it. <clears throat> but when I joined, uh, I always, I never have this, and I never really have had that, that, the thought in my mind that like, oh yeah, I know everything. I've always kind of been like, I'm kind of an idiot. Like, I don't really know as much as what, it's not that I don't know as much as I think I know. I know that I don't know as much as, other people think I know, if that makes sense. 
Well, okay. So you're saying people just have a lot of confidence in you? Why is that the it's case? It's been like that for a large portion of my adult life. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I'm tall and I have a deep voice. <laughs> uh, maybe it's because I have a beard. Who knows? But I've always found that people assume that I know more than I do. And that scares me. Um, hmm. Until now. Now it's different. Uh, now people don't have that assumption. Because uh, uh, I'm another... I'm among peers in what I do and everybody's kind of just, well, we'll get to that in a minute in, in the story, but you know, cause you work in this, in this job now uh, at Databricks where if you're in consulting or in professional services or, you know, these groups that do problem solving for use cases on the applied side, of using the platform to solve real problems at a company. And you're helping people out. You're either helping them develop a solution within the platform, like helping them write code. Sometimes you're delivering code for them. Sometimes you're teaching them how to do stuff. It's very sort of isolationist. So you're there as the expert, air quotes, the expert. And you're seen by the customer and the rest of the team that you're working with at your own company that, Hey, this is, this is the person that knows what they're talking about. Like they're really skilled in this, in this area and they can do all this magical stuff. And I was always kind of like, yeah, I, I know how to do some stuff cause I've done it before, but I don't know all of this stuff. And, you know, you kind of get panicked sometimes, or I did at the time I was like, they're asking how to do this thing in this in the product I have, i've never even touched that before i've never had to learn it before and when, if when you're in a situation or when when i was in the situation where everybody's looking at you sometimes legitimately actually looking at you across from a table that you're at at a boardroom in a company uh, at a customer site and everybody's like do you you must have the answer there genius man yeah i was never hesitant to tell to be honest with people I'd be like, I have no idea, but I'm going to find out, uh, by the time, like this time tomorrow, I'll come back with an answer and I'll have example code that I wrote to prove how this works to myself. And I can share it with you or I'll tell you that it's not possible because I tried to do it and our product doesn't support that or something real quick. Do you mind just saying how you say, I don't know, like, can you demonstrate saying, I don't know? Like Ben, how do you, uh, I don't know, paint a zebra pink? I have no idea. Interesting. So it's very much like, it's not like, but I'll get back to you. It's um, just being very honest and open that you have no idea. I mean, I'll follow that up. You know, sometimes right. you say that to some people who are like, hey, we're paying like however yeah. many thousands of dollars. A Has day anybody ever freaked person. out? Oh, of course. But um, if you're just honest to them, you're like, I'm a human being. I have flaws and limitations like everybody else. I'm not uh, some robot, uh, Android that has all of this data in my head that knows how to answer every question. So it, sometimes when I would do an introduction with customers, I would actually preface like when I'm when they're like, "Hey, everybody introduce yourself." I would use that time to actually say, you know, go over my allotted time. 
and, and talk about how I'm going to be interacting with them. And I would be very open with, with everybody like, hey, <clears throat> I'm here to help you and, and make you successful, teach you a bunch of things. We're going to work together in whatever capacity you want. But there's going to be times where you're going to ask me a question. I'm not going to know the answer. And like, please don't freak out. I know who to ask, where to go to get the answer, and I'll get it for you. And so long as <clears throat> we're kind of approaching that engagement, that partnership in that way, people are usually pretty cool with, with you just saying, like, hey, I, I don't know. I have no idea, but I'm going to find out. Or yeah. sometimes if it was a question like what you posed to me, it's probably not the exact response I'd have. I'd probably be like, I have no idea and I don't care. Uh, <laughs> and I will not find out. <laughs> I wouldn't even need to say that. Just the, yeah. I, I really don't care. Um, but usually people are asking legitimate questions of like, how does, how does this technology work? And how is it going to help me solve the problem? Sometimes the questions would be coming from a place where it was purely just how does this technology work? And I would respond to those slightly differently. If I do, like, if I didn't know the, the answer and I understood why they were asking it, it was very obvious why they were asking it. Um, I would answer in such a way that it's teaching them to go and figure out how to, like, figure, like, get answers to this themselves. It's open source projects that this is based off of our, you know, our code is proprietary, but they can generally find out answers to the applied side of things by looking in the source code. And I do it with them. I'd be like, Hey, you want to know how this works? Let's go look together. I'll bring up the website. Let's look through the docs uh, of the actual source code implementation. If it was something really tricky and there was, you know, they're asking a question about how some private implementation works, that I, which means there's no public API for this, but they want to know how the internals work. <clears throat> we had to open up the source code on GitHub and drive to that location. We'd read it together and talk about it. Be like, hey, I think this is doing this. But it, for me, it was never being sort of the, the dictation style declarative teaching of like, this is how this works. And I know for certain, because honestly, I don't know. I didn't write the code. So I'm assuming that, you know, when you're looking, talking about something as complex as Apache Spark, you should be having a, like some amount of assumptions about your understanding of how everything works. Uh, it's complex. Um, so walking through how that, how things interrelate with one another and how implementations are done Doing it that way and saying, I don't know, but let's look at it together it is very, it's relatable for the person asking the question. And it makes right. them think like, hang on, I just saw this guy do something that I could have done. Maybe I should just go and look this up in the future. Yeah. Uh, which is another reason why I would do stuff like that. Because yeah. it's the teacher person to fish thing, right? You don't want somebody to be dependent on a, somebody that other people call an expert because that person is probably not an actual expert. The only you know actual experts in the realm of, of that software package are the people that are on the commit history of it. Yeah, and, and they're not they know it because they built it. Right. Yeah. Um, 
but I still had that. It was that external factor of people looking at what I was doing. And you experience the same thing right now, I'm sure. You walk in that room, into that boardroom, and there's 15 data engineers and five data scientists and some managers and a VP and, and the Databricks sales team is there as well. They're looking at you as like, hey, that's the answer guy. He's, that's the guy that knows how to solve our problems. And I, I hated that feeling. And I always wanted to dispel that, that mythos that existed before I even walked in the room. Because there's so many assumptions that people make about that. Of like, hey, that's, hey, either that's our code monkey that's going to like just sit there and write code for us and solve our problem, <clears throat> which is not good uh, for you or for them. Or they're looking at you as like, that's the dude that knows how the entire product works and we can ask him anything and he's just going to know. And then when yeah. you say like, uh, I'm not sure or worse, you make something up because you're panicked and you don't want to seem like an idiot because everybody's looking at you like a genius. So I was always very, very intentional about letting people know that that preconception that they had of me <clears throat> was incorrect because it is. Yeah. I, I do that as well. Actually. Um, when I first joined, it was, it was super interesting. I, I would, like the first project I was put on was tech support for like a uh, big credit company. Um, and essentially what I would do is I would attend their daily standups and answer questions on Slack. If people were having bugs with Databricks SQL, I would just like Google or look in Databricks documentation and answer it for them. And this was so hard for me. I was like, like I remember when Ben described the job to me, it's like drinking from a fire hose. I was like, yeah, this is crazy. Three months later, I just that would have taken me like five seconds to to answer all the questions. And it's interesting how like these like growth lead to a plateau, and then you take up a bigger challenge that plateaus again, bigger challenge that plateaus again. And I think around at the six month mark, I realized that sort of bullshitting is really not valuable. If you come at it uh, like not knowing something via a place of humility and confidence that you can learn something. And I developed that confidence via reps. Uh, it's it's a lot more compelling. And then you can actually get in the room and say, hey, I don't know. Let's collaborate. And then people start throwing out ideas as well. And so it's sort of a meeting of the minds instead of like a Q&A. And that has led to some really, really great solutions with customers. So, yeah, I completely agree. Um, but it's sometimes hard to enter with that confidence if you haven't uh, built or like learned a bunch of things many, many times. Um, and I have made stuff up and it has, <laughs> it has ended very poorly. <laughs> Do not recommend. Yeah. I mean, I think that's sort of a, the default response for people in tech is you're working on problems that are complex that require you to learn esoteric languages and methodologies and a different way of thinking than a lot of people on this planet end up spending their time at work. So it's exclusive in the, the sense that you're having to tackle challenging problems in, in this manner. And because not everybody is exposed to how to solve problems like that, people think, you know, 
it's very easy for people to do that association with you being a magician. You can just conjure these things up and solve all these problems. The further distance somebody is away from having done that themselves in the past, the more magical it seems. The closer that they are, or if they're actually actively doing it, those are the people you got to worry about if you start BSing. Because uh, they're going to they're gonna instantly recognize it. Some may call you out. The more dangerous are the ones that don't say anything, and they just now think that you're an idiot, like yes, an actual idiot. Happened. Yeah. Um, so the, the natural response for people in tech who are confronted in a situation like that where they don't know something and they don't want people to think that they don't know something uh, is to just start riffing, like making stuff up. It's it's never worked out for me in the past. Um, but I didn't learn that in software, though. I didn't learn that in doing consulting. I didn't learn that as a data scientist. I learned that as a nuclear engineering technician in the United States Navy from mm-hmm. doing, from a- having to answer questions that were posed to me that I was supposed to have memorized the answer. Like memorized every single word in a paragraph. You have to like, know what's an this example? thing. Um, it's all classified, dude. I can't talk about that. Stuff. No, like if somebody says, somebody walks in, you're standing watch in central control or maneuvering or something, which is like the engineering headquarters uh, of a ship, and it's a, they're an inspector, and they ask something about the design of the reactor or what you're supposed to do in the event of this incident happening. Mm. Like, hey, we just lost. You know, we just lost number two, you know, ship service turbine generator. What do you do? And they start to type like a clock, a, a stopwatch about how long it takes you to simulate your actions, what you would be saying to the engineering officer of the watch and what you would do to recover the electrical distribution system to make sure that we don't have a bad thing happen in the reactor core or, uh, you know, on the ship. So you can't riff and make stuff up. And if you do, you get punished, not physically, but you can lose qualifications. You can be removed from watch rotation and put into like a very painful experience. So there is an expectation that you understand and have memorized a great deal of information. And you spend a lot of time memorizing that and practicing simulating taking those actions and sometimes actually taking those actions. Um, but there's other questions that they may ask that you might not need to know, like memorized or you, you know, they don't expect everybody to be perfect at everything that you do. But if you make something up and lie, that's a character flaw. And they don't Oof. want people that do stuff like that operating yeah. nuclear reactors. So it's, (laughs) yeah, I'd hope not that like brutal honesty about your own competency and what you know and what you don't know is drilled into all of us so forcefully that it's just kind of stuck with me. And I find that people respect that quite a bit. It's not that I'm doing it out of like to gain respect from people. It's more, it's to gain respect for myself to be aware of what I can and can't do. And then if it's something that I want to be able to do that I can't do, to sort of formulate a plan of how to go about getting good at that. Yeah. And just another like 
angle slash perspective, especially for young people. I remember when I was in college, I would try really, really hard to look the part because it's super hard to get a job. Like you got to you got to get good grades. You got to get the internship. You got to know people. And so all of this sort of was about looking the part so that you could succeed. And I remember that that mindset really did not serve me well in so many ways. Like actually being good is the solution, not looking good. And smart people will often find out pretty quickly if you know what you're talking about. Um, so sometimes biting off more than you can chew, it's fun, it's a challenge, but it can come back to bite you if you if you don't really like back it up with knowledge and skill. Um, and this is something that I've learned in the past several years. And now if I don't know something, I I do not go out on a limb. There's no advantage of me maybe looking like I know the answer. They don't like the people don't really care. Like it doesn't, it's not that deep. If you say I will give you the answer in 24 hours versus right now, typically that's okay. And if you're in a room where you're supposed to look smart and you don't know a question, prepare better next time. Like it's not, don't make stuff up. It really does not help. And sometimes you can build street cred and and really gain respect from seasoned people if you're humble enough to admit yes. in front of a lot of people that you have no idea what they just asked you. Because the senior people, they've definitely been there and they're probably senior because they have behaved that way themselves. Yes. And they're usually like, oh, I got respect for this person. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So Ben, you entered, you were maybe, uh, well, you had you already had this, this sort of training where you would be very objective and be very humble. And when you don't know, know something, you would admit it and go find it out in an efficient manner. So that's an awesome skill to enter with at Databricks. But I'm curious, so if we think about sort of the x-axis is time and over those six years, how did you change? What what were their inflection points with a specific role, with a specific project? How did your skills change? Did you learn how to learn faster? Yeah, we're just curious to, to hear about that. The stuff that I started to do in the field, and I think it was largely due to when I joined, um, because they're like, if you look at my matriculation class, like people that were there at that point in time, where they all are now at the company, I think almost all of them still work at Databricks. Nice. Um, I think we have a director in the field. We have a principal engineer, a principal field engineer. Uh, which is an L8, pretty high up. Um, a bunch of senior managers and one person who moved to engineering. Um, so, and then the, we have another person who is a principal on like the security side of things, doing engineering support mm -hmm. for the field. It's like the global security expert. Um, super smart dude, Silvio. Um, so a lot of these people have, we were all promoted relatively quickly uh, over the years. And because we were the ones with experience. So like, hey, you've been doing this for a year or two years or something. We're about to hire 40 people in the United States and 20 in Europe. And, you know, we need you to be like the leader, like the tech leader of these people. Right. 
And then you just start getting promoted up faster and faster to higher and higher levels until we're, you know, a bunch of managers, senior managers, principals, and there's hundreds of people that are in the field now, uh, years later. So the higher you get in an organization like that, in a technical role, the further you are away from being hands-on keyboard for individual problems, you're called in for sort of thought leadership, I guess is what they call it. Um, there might be some big account and they want you to talk to the head of data science or the head of like data engineering. Uh, and this person at that company, they could have 5,000 employees working for them. You know, it's big time uh, at some of these right. companies. And they want you to go and just talk to them. Maybe it's for a half an hour a week. Maybe it's for, like, hey, we want you to fly out to their corporate headquarters for a week and spend that week with this person and their team. And it's you're just there with a bunch of very senior engineering managers for the data engineering side of the house or ML. And that's what, how I spent a large amount of my time was doing those sorts of engagements, sometimes as an actual architect, even though that's part of the job title of a lot of consulting. I don't know where, where that comes from exactly, but um, a software architect at most companies, when you're talking about a big company that has architects there, you're doing systems design. You're figuring out right. like what tech are we using? Why are we using it? How is it being used? How are these systems going to integrate with each other for this project? Are we making sure that these seven different engineering teams are all working together and they're building compatible technology? Like how are they, what's the structure of JSON that they're using to trans, like talk to one another of yeah. these services? So <clears throat> that level of, of actual software architecture. It's a lot of the stuff that I was doing. And to be honest, and this is not to knock that field or that job or anything. Uh, I just found that it wasn't for me. It didn't excite me. And it, not? there was nothing new that was coming up for me. Huh. So new things were happening in the tech space. Like, oh, there's this new provider that does this thing in data engineering or there's this new ML library, this paper that just got released and people want to use it. I wasn't using it. I, I wasn't like, playing around with it. Maybe I was in my spare time. But I'm not somebody that gets excited at just playing with tech. It, it's, I know some people love that stuff. Um, but I don't, I'm not going to be one of those people that's like, oh, the new version of PyTorch download, like released. I'm going to download it right now and I'm going to start building a model and I'm going to find this data set online. I'm going to see if I can get it. I, like, I don't care. I've done that so many times in my career. That is not exciting to me. Uh, building yet another model or hyperparameter tuning one, it's, it bores the life out of me. Um, when did you, but, just out of curiosity, when did you learn that? <coughs> Was it? Was there an inflection point or did you just like wake up one day and realize that this wasn't for you or did you know going in? I mean, that's one of the reasons why I took the job at Databricks. Because <laughs> I was like, I found that for my personality type and what I like to do, the aspects of my job that I really enjoyed, 
at the company I worked at before moving to Databricks wasn't the ML stuff. I was okay at that. I understood a, a lot of it. I knew how to deploy models and how to use them and how to train them and like how to how to do experimental design. Um, yet another thing that I did not learn while working as a data scientist. I learned that working as a traditional engineer at factories. But that whole process of it's just like the the training loop. I found that boring um, and tedious. And I also, I liked the aspect of coming up with the solution to a problem from like a product perspective. Like, hey, we have this business problem. We need to solve it, but we need a tech nerd to help us. Not we need a tech nerd or an air quote genius to come in and solve this. Because I was never that person. I never am going to be that person. Uh, I, I don't, I've never met any of those people, by the way. I don't know if they exist. But I was always like, hey, I'd like to be part of that team that, that helps to solve this. I'm here to, to figure out and work with you with your ideas to see if they're technically feasible. And I'll build a bunch of prototypes really quick and, and see if this is even something worth investing time in. And then I'll go and, and figure that out. It was that going that now I'm going to go and figure it out and actually build it. That was the part that bored me on the ML right. side. What I found that I really liked was the software side of things. Whereas like after I have this model interfacing with production systems and figuring out how to build something that is testable and can be deployed and is safe and is monitored. And I found that a much sort of bigger ecosystem to explore and understand that I felt very overwhelmed. And I always liked that. I love that feeling of, wow, there's a lot of stuff here that I don't know. This is exciting. Uh, I feel so stupid. This is great. So I, I kind of started to lose that feeling when I got more senior in the field at Databricks. But that's on me. It's not the job that sucks. That job sucked for me um, because I was no longer feeling that. It was more conversations with people and talking about how they can leverage technology. So I was giving them the stuff that I had learned from doing for years and years and years, which is how to solve a business problem with tech. And it was more strategy type discussions. Or talking to the first line leaders of or of groups about how to how to get their people up to speed on this this technology so that they're super effective in solving these business problems. And it was just my calendar was filled with video conferencing calls. I was traveling to different cities in the eastern half of North America to just talk with executives and and senior people in, in data engineering and ML. Some of those talks were super awesome. I had a great time talking to people, some really smart people, really fun, some jokers, uh, you know, my type of people. But I wasn't passionate about it. I was, I thought, okay at doing that. Uh, people were requesting me on, you know, to go to do different things constantly. And there was a backlog of, 
of people wanting my time to go and do these things. But I just started thinking, I was like, I'm not excited about logging into my computer every day. It felt like a job to me. That's no good. Yeah. Yeah. So I had some very pointed talks with my fantastic manager at the time. Um, who's actually like an, an area vice president, um, Alex, awesome. our guy. Yeah, great guy. I was like, hey, man, I'd like to go and try and work in engineering, see if they want me to, if they'd be willing to, to take some of my time to work on whatever. I don't care what. I just, I'm really excited about that. And he was like, yeah, go do it. I'm not going to stop you. And he was like a huge proponent of me going to do that and had my back and was a huge supporter. So allowed me to embed with an engineering team um, for about two years until finally engineering was like, do you want to just come over and do this full time? I was like, sure. Yeah, let's do it. Nice. But that was the real inflection point for me in not the internal view of myself that hasn't changed. It, that hasn't changed in decades. Uh, it was more the external perception of me changed. Because now uh, moving, like moving into that peer group in engineering, everybody is incredibly gifted and competent. I mean, fantastic engineers just fantastic humans I, I i absolutely adore the people that i work with they're amazing but everybody has this sort of same sense of nobody's looking at anybody else like oh you're the smart person in the room or you're the person who's going to come and solve all our problems there's no individualism in the in the group there are people that are specialists in different parts that are really good at these one at these things, but nobody's like, oh, that's that person that does that thing. They're the genius that does that. It's more of, hey, you're really good at that. Do you want to continue being the person who's known for this before we ask you to do more stuff on this? If no, what would you like to work on instead? But everybody's just this team and we think and behave and act as a team of solving problems together. And I don't know, once you find an environment like that, where you're just like, man, everybody's awesome. And we're all working together and everybody gets along and we're solving interesting new challenges every single day of things that we, we never thought we would have been able to figure out or had no idea how to solve this even two weeks ago. And we just ship the code for it. It's it's an interesting and very fulfilling place for me. What percent of the companies you worked with had, obviously, like you, you regard Databricks engineering culture extremely highly, but what percent of the companies that you worked with, in your opinion, had a strong collaborative culture where there's this sort of decentralization of talent and there's humility and, and communication? Good question. Um, in a different vein, with much more structure, but a bunch of 
brilliant people that were all working together on very challenging problems. My time at Samsung, um, I did not enjoy working for that company for as long as I did, but that, that was more on me, not on the company. Um, but some of the brightest people I've worked with in my career came from that factory. Um, like true, like genius level intellects were there. And what about the orgs that you consulted with? Were you there long enough to get a good read? Do you think, or not like via field engineering to be clear? There were a couple that, I mean, we can't name names of course, but uh, yeah, there were a couple that I got a chance to work with because they wanted to do things that our product couldn't quite do and they wanted somebody who would work with them to build in new functionality manually so actually implement the feature themselves before databricks product was ready to release it and they were cool with throwing the code away once once databricks supported this this functionality but they just wanted somebody who was at that same level as them to come in and, and help them build it. Those engagements were always super cool to me because I learned a lot. And, you know, the people that I interacted with were just phenomenal. Um, those are more like the tech first companies. Like they're, they started out as some sort of San Francisco startup or something, or maybe in New York. And they hired top tech, you know, tech talent in the startup space. And these people have just built something really cool and they want to leverage our product in a way that you can't find out how to do it in, you know, our documentation. We're talking, they're writing low level, like class loaders that are going to be implementing functionality that starts when Spark starts so that they can override or, you know, hijack namespaces and, and inject functionality that our product doesn't offer or Spark doesn't offer. So just cool stuff like that. Um, yeah, what like what percent of the companies, just trying to get a lay of the land, because you've worked <laughs> with hundreds over the past five years. Um, what percent of the companies do you think have a strong collaborative culture? Or is that really rare? Oh, from a from an engineering culture perspective. I, there's only been two that I've seen, aside from Databricks, that have that sort of camaraderie and the way of how people behave for what they're passionate about and what their task is on a day-to-day basis. Um, I've only seen three tech companies in my entire career that are like that. Uh, It's pretty rare. Um, And that's all about, you know, super selective hiring, actually. The way that you build a culture like that is having you know, strong company vision, strong managers, first-line leaders that embody that culture and foster it and make sure that the team is focused on having an engineering management organization that has faith in them to allow them to do what they know is right. And you don't need to micromanage professionals, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. And making sure that the team has embodiment of an ownership mentality. Like you own that product, you built it, 
you maintain it, you're the one that's making that successful or not as a team. And the only way you can make sure that you have like-minded people that are competent enough that can do that together is by being very selective on your hiring, not just for technical talent. Technical talent's important. It's a minimum bar that you have to hit. But people can improve on that over time. You cannot improve your personality or the way that you view existence. That is set in stone. I know there's people that, are, that believe that you can change that. But if you're by default a jackass and think that you're the smartest person on the planet and treat everybody else like shit in your interactions with them, nobody wants to work with you. That is the best way to poison a, an organization is by letting people like that in. And you can tell if you do a long enough interview process with enough diversity of people who are doing the evaluation of a candidate, you can weed that out. It's not that hard. But that means you're during your interview process, you're not just looking for answers to technical questions. You're looking at that person. You're studying them. You're seeing how do they react when I ask them something that I know they don't know? How much does that annoy them? How frustrated do they get? Do they start making stuff up and lying? Or are they honest with me? Because you need that in your, that culture to, to have everybody see each other as equal and behaving as a cohesive team. Everybody needs to be honest with one another with what they know and what they don't know. But then you also need that, that built-in desire for somebody to admit that they don't know and then want to go and find, like, figure it out. And then having faith in themselves and those around them to know that I'm going to figure this out. Even though right now it's ancient Greek to me, I have no idea how this works. I know that from my past experience that I'm going to figure this out. Right. Or I'm yes. going to find out in a short period of time that, hey, this is actually not possible. Like This is a limitation of the laws of physics. We can't do this. And be able to write up a report that explains why and everything that I tested that validates this hypothesis. Right. Yeah, reps are huge. If if you consistently demonstrate to yourself that you can learn something really quickly, like if you peer over the edge of a cliff and say, all right, I'm about to jump, but you do that a million times and it, you're fine after the every single jump, essentially, um, it really builds that confidence. And then you can go into an interview for a job that you really want and just say, I don't know, but I can figure it out in 30 minutes. Um, and typically interviewers notice that level of confidence. Um, question though, so you said jackasses are not ideal. Are there? There's the stereotype of of A players hate working with B players. Have you experienced that? And how do you define A and B players? Anybody that defines anybody as an A player or a B player is a jackass. Cool, one hundred percent. That is that sort of divisive mentality and elitism in any intellectual pursuit or professional capacity is one of the most toxic behaviors that you can have. There are people who, when you talk about skill in a technical skill, like how good can you code? Um, that That's built by experience about practicing and understanding like, you have to have a knowledge foundation. You have to understand the concepts of what it is that you're doing, 
how to how to solve a problem in software. Uh, you build experience over time in a multitude of different ways, but you can intentionally study things and work on problems that expand your knowledge and wisdom associated with solving problems with code by intentionally working on problems that are relevant and are complex enough that are going to push you beyond your current level of competency. That's something that you can do. It's you can actively, you know, work on that. So that concept of like A players and B players or or varsity and junior varsity. If you're somebody who like thinks of themselves as an A player and you're like, oh, I don't want any of these like B players or C string uh, or the D listers on my team to be working on this project with me. If you're the person that everybody sees as being that amazing person, that is a failure on you if you're not helping those people that are struggling to get to your level. That should be the goal of anybody who is seen as a technical lead, uh, whether it's in job title or not, is you're not doing your company, your team, yourself, your other people that work with you any favors if you're trying to maintain that division. So everybody's going to be at a different point. That's why they have leveling at most companies. So if you have somebody who's a junior engineer, they've got you know, nine months or a year and a half of experience out of school. <clears throat> the reason that you require a college degree for most, you know, software development jobs is because everybody's there to learn the fundamentals and you should understand that, that knowledge basis that you need in order to produce production code. But everything from that point that's at that company while you're, that's the person's a junior engineer, they should have a mentor. They should have somebody who's working with them to teach them all the nuances of, hey, here's all this tribal knowledge that was built up over the past 60 years in industry. I'm going to get you up to speed on the things that are relevant today. And I'll be there as, as the person that you can ask anything to in order for you to better understand how this stuff works. And I've never seen a mentor, somebody who's in a mentor position in any sort of high-tech industry who's respected um, ever make comments like that of like, oh, half the devs on the team suck. It's like, okay, what are you doing about it? Like, why, why are they bad? Are they, is it, and it, every time that I've pressed people that have had that mentality, by the way, I've known many people who think that way, that with that statement that you said, they're far more common than the rest of the people out there. Um, every time I've gotten into it with somebody like that and start asking like, okay, how do you know that they're bad? Let's get to, through that at first. And they're like, well, you know, they they filed a PR and it just sucked. The code was terrible. Like, what was terrible about it? Did it do what it was intending to do or was it broken? Uh, did it have tests? Did the test pass? Like, was the syntax bad? Was it unreadable? Was it too complex? Was it too simplistic? Like, what was bad about it? Most of the time, those sort of people with that attitude don't have that answer. They can't say what was wrong. 
they'll just say, oh, the code was shit. Really? And then if you really sit down with them and you say, let's do a code review together and let's see why this is so bad. Sometimes they do. They'll elucidate every single flaw in the code. In their mind. Sometimes that's stuff like, I don't like their naming conventions or I don't like how they didn't specify a return type on this and they returned an any it could be just nitpicky stuff that they don't like because that's the way that they code and they do, they hate it when people don't code the, in the exact same way that they do. Spoiler alert, the computer doesn't give a shit. It'll run whatever you send at it. Um, so you can have people that are like that, that are elitists about like my way is the best way and everybody else is inferior. Uh, I hate those people. Like I don't say that a lot about hating human beings but people with that mentality i actually hate them like truly and fundamentally hate people like that um like get over yourself uh that's not a team mentality that is not how humans work together to solve anything um you want to be like that like go start your own one person company somewhere see how well that works out for you uh but then a, a large portion of the that group of people that have that mentality of the A versus B team, when you sit down with them and ask them what's wrong with code, a lot of times they don't pick up on really serious things that are wrong with it. They actually, they're full of shit. They actually don't know. They just, they're projecting their own insecurities out onto other people. So that they're like, oh, I don't want anybody to find out that I'm, I'm a B player, so I'm gonna just act like I'm I'm like the the you know smartest person here. Typically nobody cares uh in a serious engineering org <coughs> about and that doesn't even enter into most people's minds, uh, except that person who's super insecure. And they should go and do something about that. Like start being nice to people, work with them, uh pair up with people. You'll be amazed how much you can learn even from people that are more junior than you in in the amount of time in a company or in their career, be open to get better and don't worry about that, that voice in the back of your head. That's warning you that you're going to get found out that you're not as good as everybody thinks you are. Like nobody cares. It's all in your head. So long story short, uh, the people that think like that, they're either the problem, usually the problem, or they're creating a problem that doesn't exist. Is there ever a time where you should not mentor a junior person? Like what are the junior person red flags that would make you lose faith in, in teaching this person? Uh, if they Other have the obvious, like I mean, being an asshole. yeah, I mean, if they're a jerk. Uh, I won't mentor somebody. Uh, if they're just not, not a nice person. Uh, I don't have time for that. Um, I also don't want to help somebody out who has truth problems. If I ask them something or ask them to go and do something as sort of like a homework type thing with like, we're learning this concept together or I'm teaching this thing to them and I want them to really understand how this thing works. And then they just lie to me. Uh, Like the next time that we meet or, 
they make something up about having an excuse about why they didn't do it. Um, it's fine. Like, just be honest. Just be like, hey, I, I didn't have time to work on this. Um, we'll get to it next week. But cool. Let's talk about something else. But if it's a consistent pattern of them just going out of their way to make up stuff in order to in order for them to make themselves more comfortable with the fact that they think that I think they're they're smart or something. You know, you can tell when people are behaving that way. Like, oh, I don't want to let this person down and have them make me think that that I, I don't I'm not worthy. It's like if I'm spending my time talking with somebody and teaching them something, I already think they're worthy of my time. So that's why I'm having the conversation or willing to engage with them. Uh, it doesn't do them any favor to, you know, try to lie to me. Uh, yeah. Honesty is always the best. That's yeah. pretty much the only two things. I mean, I've had people that uh, I've done mentoring with in software before where they expressed aspirations. Like they're a really like nice person. They're, they seem like they're really hardworking and, uh, thoroughly enjoyed talking to them and they expressed an interest in learning concepts and they wanted to like learn data science for instance and it didn't work out and it was more it it, the time that it the way to get to that point of finding out that it doesn't work out was never me initiating that it was never me saying like hey you're an idiot you can't figure this out never that didn't even come into my mind I was always like, this is super cool. This person wants to learn this and I can help teach them and help them on this journey. Hell yeah, I'm going to spend time doing this. Uh, It's valuable. Who knows? They may get really good at this and this could be a career altering and life altering thing for them to get into this field. They may be excellent at it. I don't know. I can't predict the future. So I have a responsibility to help them out. Um, But I would wait for them. If I kind of knew that this this was not going the way that they wanted it to go. Uh, they're just, it's not for everybody. Uh, I would just wait for them to politely say like, Hey, this is really cool. Thanks for all your time. It just isn't for me. And I'd be like, no hard feelings. Keep in touch. Uh, let's talk about the other stuff that we like talking about, but you know, you could tell that it's almost painful for them to say that. Like, I didn't want to let you down. Like you're not letting me down. Go find your passion. But it's important that you you tried this out because you thought it might be interesting and then you found out that it's not for you. It's the only way yeah. to know. Yeah, that I to be clear though, your perspective is very rare. I, I've I've been the nice and honest person, the junior person in the room many times, and you can get burned uh, a little bit. And it's important to like maintain confidence in being nice and honest, but um there are bullies out there for sure in the, especially in the, the tech space where everybody was the smartest person <laughs> in their class for at least like some amount of time. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, they don't I mean, take things too personally as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you get, if you're a mentee and your mentor is behaving like that to you, go find a better mentor. They exist. They're out there. Sometimes they're not advertising that they want a flock of, attendees you know listening to their every spoken word uh sometimes they're the quiet more senior person that they don't 
maybe they're not super talkative. Maybe they're not super engaged because there is a bully in the team or something. Talk to them. Look at how they like, look at the results of their code. If like, look at what they're working on in their projects. And you're like, wow, this is super cool. Maybe I should go talk to this person. Go do that. You can have a, like a very quiet mentor mentee relationship where it's, it's like, Hey, I just want to pick your brain on some ideas here. And could you look at what I'm trying out here? Sometimes you're going to get just pure solid gold from, from people like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I've been thinking about um, sort of a lot of career stuff. And so recently I reached out to some smart people in, in my past and who I either like were friends with or worked with and uh, had some really useful uh, conversations and plan to continue doing that. And yeah, if you just go in genuinely looking to learn and hear, it's like, I don't I really don't have words for how, how impactful that can be. Um, so I definitely recommend reaching out to people. And also, it's a no if you don't try. So <laughs> it, there's, there's no downside, really. Like, maybe they say no. Maybe you're like, oh, that didn't feel great. But it was already a no if you didn't try. So thinking about the results is a good way to get through that pain. Yeah, and sometimes the rejection for somebody turning you down for you know, mentoring is really like that person's just super busy. Yeah. You know, I, (coughs) three years ago, I used to do, you know, we talk, you know, every other week for an hour. Um, Three years ago, there was, it was either 14 or 15 per week of those that I was doing. Um, Just random people that wanted to. 14 or 15? Yeah, that's a two full work, like an hour or half hour, half an hour to an hour, depending on the person. Good lord! So, yeah, we're it was about fifteen hours a week where it was just mentoring sessions with people. Some people wanted help with tech problems, like they would just show code and we'd talk about code uh, or an implementation or something. Some people wanted career advice. Um, Some people wanted to just talk tech or they wanted to learn about ML or they wanted, you know, to talk about a paper that they had read recently. And I'm always open to like nerd out at the time. I didn't have so many commitments with like delivering code and delivering solutions. So uh, yeah, it was part of being like a, a principal in the field, which was helping to grow the next generation of people that are going to replace you. That's the goal. When you're senior, you should be doing that. Like how do I how do I groom my replacement? Or not groom, but how do I enable my replacement to be better than I was when I was at that level? Right. And that was always my goal. And I did it with, you know, a bunch of like 20, 30 different people. Some met once a week, some met every other week. Um, that's much less now. <laughs> um, but uh yeah, it's important if you're if you're somebody who values other people succeeding and being good at what they do and, and enjoying what they do, and you're somebody who's good at what you do, why not pass that on? Give somebody another perspective. It might not be the right perspective for them, but it could be a way for them to think about how they view their own role and their own work and their career and sometimes their life. 
you can sometimes just by having a conversation with a mentee, give them a perspective where they, they then go and do a bunch of self reflective introspection and make positive change in their life. Sometimes it's a cautionary tale. You're telling somebody like how you think about something and they might be like, that sucks. I don't ever want to do that. It could be valuable for them. Just having that perspective. Right. Okay. I will conclude with one more question slash activity. Uh, let's take turns at naming the three most valuable things that we've learned at Databricks thus far. And and to put a little context into that, Ben and I entered into at very different places. I was like a year or two out of college, uh, pretty like reasonable inferential modeling skill set, but um, had a lot to learn, very wide-eyed. Um, still am, I guess. And then Ben had 10 years of nuclear engineering experience and a bunch of others. So um, this should be like, I'm expecting them to be different answers, but I'm curious. So what's your, what's your first one? So out of order, so no particular order. Um, community is more important than you think in a workplace. How do you define community? How you see yourself within your tribal unit. So at a, the lowest level, your immediate team. The next level, how do, how do you and how does your team fit within the state, you know, for lack of a better term, of your department? And then how does your you, your team, and your department fit within the nation of your company? And how do you define? Thinking of what that community is and how, you know, companies can be like nations, right? You know, you're all aligned to a a strategic goal and uh, how well do you work with your neighbors and how well do you fit in with your community? And a, a company that is proactive about ensuring that there is that level of inclusiveness and I'm not talking about government mandated inclusiveness here or anything like that, not social consciousness that, that all of that, in my opinion should be a given anyway. I'm talking about, do you feel like you belong in your organization and does your team feel like it's matter? Like it matters in, in the, the scheme of things. And can you, do you feel like, anybody can ask you for help on something at work and you can ask anybody for help at work that like having that as a foundation is very important i think got it and you do and important is defined as your like important to you or important to organization success sounds like it's a bit of both both okay cool um my first point also not in order um, I've been surprised at how easy it is to learn stuff. I was kind of like, I, I came in a little bit hesitant maybe. Um, but once you're thrown into the deep end, like day after day for like six months, uh, the deep end starts feeling very comfortable and, um, yeah, you want to, you want to get into even deeper water. So, um, 
yeah, reps is, is are just really valuable for developing the skills on how to learn things fast. Another thing that I've learned at Databricks, I mean, there's so many things. It's really hard to, to come up with like a, a really great top three that I'll, doesn't I, have to do with business BS. Yeah. I'll throw in another one while you're thinking. Um, competence looks very different. And there's no sort of general... Maybe there is some general like rules for a competent employee or a competent coworker, but I've been so surprised at people who appear competent at first and then are just babbling idiots. And then the inverse where they sort of don't seem very put together or they're not really, they don't like look the part, but then after working with them for several months, they're incredibly valuable in maybe not the, like the traditional super intelligent ways, but they're really dedicated and understand the, the context really well, for instance, or they're able to think critically and be very charismatic in a room when it counts. So don't judge a book by its cover. I, I've learned that for both the positive and the negative here. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, but something that specifically I learned about what to build and what not to build. Um, that's a full episode, but yeah, that's several episodes. Um, but from a the short thirty second version of that would be like intentionally designing and building something in a way that makes it easy to throw away if it sucks, and that you're open to reworking it, redoing it, or throwing it away. Um, so basically making sure that you're you're building things in like in such a way that change is easy and that's not just from a technical perspective it's also from an ownership slash emotional perspective so like not getting wedded to your code you know just like hey i built this but it's not like i own this it's the team built this and the company built this. I just happen to be the one typing it. And I don't care if it lasts for the next 10 years or it's deleted in the next 10 days. Cause I learned something from the process of doing that. Nice. Um, I don't have a third one. Do you have a third one? I, I it'll come in the next probably like 10 seconds, but because we're on a podcast. Ten seconds of silence isn't fun. So, do you have one? If not, I can keep stalling and discussing nothing. <laughs> Ten seconds of pause. Um, yeah, I mean, I learned a lot about what we had just talked about before the, these questions about the mentoring process and about how important it is and how you can. It's not so much being an agent for change because I think that's selfish and intentional. It's more of there's nobody who is senior and has amassed a lot of wisdom that got there on their own. And you can do more good for other people, your company, and 
us in general as a species, when we think about a much larger scale than most people think about, um, you never know what can happen if somebody just finds something that they're really good at. You never know where they're going to go later on. So you could ignite a spark in somebody and make them really passionate about really being really good at what you do. Whether it's machine learning, data science, analytics, software engineering, doesn't matter. Um, anything non-technical as well. <clears throat> the more that you help that person grow, the more prepared they are for future challenges. And you never know what that person's going to do 30 years from now. You could have been the catalyst that gave them enough faith in themselves to tackle more challenging things. You listen to any success story from the end of somebody's life who did something profound on this planet for our species and taught and listen to like what started it for them. And a lot of times it was somebody that like, took them under their wing, who was like a mentor for them, whether it was in sports or it was in college or it was in the early years of their career. Maybe it was in the mid years of their career and they just happened to work with these amazing people at this one point. And then they go and invent some technology that revolutionizes us as a species, or they go and do something that has never been done before that leaves us all in awe and speechless as a species. You never know what can happen. So why not give that back just in case that happens? Yeah, that's a very optimistic, but how do you protect your time? I mean, what's it comes down to what's most important to you. Fair. Yeah. So are you like, if you're working in a job where your company is requiring that you spend exactly 64 hours a week doing your core job responsibilities, um, newsflash to American companies out there, that person should quit that job. You can get a better job. Trust me. Um, Cause that sucks. Now, if you're working, you know, the general amount that like for now, for me, for now, you know, software engineering, uh, if, if I were to tally up and compress the actual amount of time that I'm spent writing code in a week or doing design or, you know, things that are only related to the core job responsibilities of a senior software engineer. Um, it's probably somewhere between 30 to 40 hours a week would be like time on keyboard writing code or running tests or fixing something or debugging something. The rest of that time is meetings, uh, like planning, stand-up, uh, just doing things that aren't allocated in sprint time, basically. So what do I do with that other time? You know, do I take a break and read news? Do I chit chat with coworkers over, you know, certain things? Uh, do I spend some time mentoring people? You know, what's the most important use of, of some spare extra time that you have? I think mentoring is pretty valuable. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. My third and final point is not going to be well articulated, but I think it's something that when I fully 
grasp it. And I'm not sure that I ever will. It might be a lifelong process. I think it'll be pretty game changing for how I approach work in general and maybe even life. So we work in professions where the right an- getting to the right answer is typically an arduous and difficult process and it takes a lot of time. But the actual right answer and implementing the right answer isn't always super time intensive. So the things that take time when, let's say, building a piece of software, it's not the keystrokes for typing up the software. It's testing everything around it, thinking about the design, scoping the problem, discussing with people about how to design these systems. And reframing work as getting to the right answer, almost like if you could take an algorithmic approach of stochastic gradient descent or like working through search algorithms that are iterative, um, or just come at it from a creative perspective and say, aha, there's the idea, or there's many different sort of analogies of how to get the right answer. And um, so reframing work as getting to the right answer has been really interesting because I've changed up a lot of what I do. I grind through problems a lot less and I take more breaks, like short breaks, um, let my brain relax and, and come at the problem sort of in a fresh and creative way. I also ask a lot more questions. I also build a lot smaller prototypes instead of saying, this is the solution. I'm going to build it start to finish. Um, so that has been really game-changing in terms of a paradigm shift of how I approach problems. And then there's going to be auxiliary things on top of that. But um, yeah, something I've that has been really impactful and I plan on developing probably until I die. I thought that was well said. It's super <laughs> important, right? Yeah, cool. All right, we are well over time once again. Maybe this is just a, not a 45-minute episode podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We'll see. But I'll summarize. Um, So one thing that was really interesting is when you're looking to build credibility, uh, doing this via humility and collaboration will attract the right people. Um, And it's often the best way to solve a problem, at least in my experience. Um, If there's a perceived division of A and B players, it's probably the fault of the A players. And they should teach and mentor so that the B, B players feel more capable and can act as a peer. Even if it's not in every aspect, enabling B players to feel like A players, and then also just sort of removing this concept is really valuable. Uh, Don't hire jackasses. And then if you're junior, be nice and honest, but also uh, be careful of people taking advantage of you. So uh, I think that's about it. Any other closing thoughts, Ben? I mean, to tack onto that last statement, if you're senior, you better be honest. (laughs) You said if you're junior, be honest, but (laughs) senior people should be honest um and that is actually an important part of mentoring is being very honest with your mentee um not about making them feel bad uh about their lack of skills and that's the whole reason why you're talking to them Uh, it's more about being honest with where you think they're gonna go aspirational be positive have no idea how bolstering that is to somebody to have somebody who they respect suddenly see in them amazing potential tell them cool well until next time it's been michael burke and my co-host ben wilson and have a good day everyone we'll see you next time